Do you ever feel that all we do is hear about the news of the day without knowing why exactly something is happening? I'm Danny Bessner from the International Affairs and History podcast, American Prestige. We pay attention to history because we believe that in order to understand the story, you've got to look at the past. Join me and Derek Davison for in-depth interviews with experts to explore issues relating to U.S. foreign policy and, really, history. Check us out at AmericanPrestigePod.com or listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Violet. Before we dive into today's show, I've got a quick favor to ask. We have a survey up on our website, harpers.org survey. Would you please take it? It shouldn't take more than five minutes to complete. As we approach five years of the podcast, we have been discussing ways to make the show even better. That's why it's crucial we hear from you. The survey's up at harpers.org survey. Thank you in advance for lending your voice. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. The media's obsession with itself, which can be read as an unfortunate side effect of budget cuts, putting drama before hard news, the outsized role of Twitter, or simply some collective psychic urge to argue that it's still relevant, can be exhausting. However, as the distinction between stars media personalities and politicians blur, it's worth taking a step back to examine some cases. Shortly after he was fired by Fox News, Tucker Carlson announced that he would be taking his show to Twitter. And as someone who has launched new websites and other digital projects, I can assure you, there absolutely will be technical problems. And it's not just because of Elon Musk, it's just gonna happen. Carlson, who has, less and less subtly, peddled blood and soiled nationalism and right-wing conspiracy theories, like the Great Replacement, claimed that he was ready to tell his audiences what's really going on without being censored by those pesky lefties on the Murdoch's payroll. Back in July 2019, the writer and historian Thomas Meany attended the first National Conservatism Conference, which featured an appearance by Carlson. His report offers a thoughtful look into those who are seeking to build a kind of Trumpism after Trump. While you may see no method, there is one. I spoke with Beanie about his experience at the conference and the thinkers that may be coming to a stream or a ballot box near you. How would you characterize the tenets or values of Trumpianism in its most earnest form? And where does it part ways with the actual uh, policies of the Trump administration? Yeah, so that's a that's a complicated question. I mean, you know, if I were to to, to define Trumpianism, um, you know, just as a as a phenomenon, I think it's quite a quite a complicated and quite um, powerful thing um, because it manages to at least at least as practiced by by Trump himself, it manages to appeal to two groups that are usually difficult to appeal to at the same time, right? So it, it manages to appeal to to a wealthy class of um, of Americans who, who who back Trump and vote for Trump, and it also manages to appeal to a more downtrodden 
group of people who would seemingly have sort of divergent interests from that first group, but it manages to sort of hold these two groups tightly together. But in terms of what you're asking about, about Trumpianism, I mean, there's a, the, the way that I kind of approached it a little bit in the piece was that um, there is this sort of new breed of ideologue um, that, um, that tries to that's tried to sort of make Trumpianism coherent um, to to sort of provide it with um, with some sort of intellectual burnish to make it into a, a, a thing that will sort of outlast the man, outlast the presidency. And and so that, you know, that that ranges from from quite cynical people, in my view, to 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 actually quite idealistic people um, or at least, you know, people who are deluded into thinking that their ideal is, is coherent. So, um, so, you know, um, and that's kind of what the, the piece is, is sort of about is it's a kind of safari ride through the coming attractions of the right in America, which I think will be, which will look a little different than the, than the right in the past. Right. And I mean, one of the names that they have sought for this new, intellectual, uh, spiritual, political tradition is James Burnham, who's somebody who seems like, you know, there's this Republican tendency to use bureaucracy as just a synonym for inefficient. And it's not sure bureaucracy is a system. It's not a synonym for inefficiency. But here, like Burnham loves managerial like managerial is like the 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 evil that pervades all things. So can you explain where this interest in James Burnham comes from and why why do they like him so much? Yeah, so so I found it quite curious that that Burnham's name came up in a number of different contexts and um and it comes up in in sort of the the high level in some ways the best um writing that that the national conservatives and their, um, you know, fellow travelers produce. Now, I think that Burnham gets into quite a profound thing, um, which is that for a long time, the right in America was still able to kind of coast on bromides from the Cold War, right? So they didn't really need to to take claims of socialism or materialism seriously because they could still attach those to the Soviet Union or to other sort of enemy regimes and retreat into a quite comfortable Cold War footing, especially later in the Cold War, right? So Burnham is is a, is a funny figure, right? Because he's totally on the right. I mean, after his early flirtations and actually, like, you know, we can go into his intellectual history a little bit, but, you know, for decades, he was, he was sort of um, William Buckley's in-house guru at um, National Review. But but Burnham never really forfeited his entire Marxist outlook. There were still shards and pieces of it that he still kept. And so in a way, I try to say this in the piece, that, that it's a way of them sort of smuggling in a kind of materialist concern. It's a way for them to kind of start talking about some of the things that you know, the the democratic socialist left is talking about. Like, they don't completely want to cede that ground. They don't want to completely not talk about some of the burning underlying issues, right? So so in a way, um, the people who mentioned Burnham were the more serious people, um, or maybe if not the most more serious people, the, the people that that I think were more worth listening to than, um, than, than the more usual suspects, you know, quoting Buckley or 
Reagan or whatever, you know, like Burnham is, he's a new figure to have been brought back. Like he's been, he's been sitting in Amber for a while. Um, <laughs> and they've kind of, they've not, not only just resurrected the Burnham of the 1980s and the 1970s, but actually the, the more interesting 1940s Burnham, you know, who someone like George Orwell, you know, was, was reading, um, with, um, with a lot of interest, you know, this Burnham was a major intellectual figure, international figure that, that people on the right, the left and, and liberals were, were reading. Um, and, um, yeah, so, so I, I kind of, thought that he was a curious figure and I gave a little bit of a sketch of him in the piece. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess material conditions have just degraded to the point that they must be acknowledged by someone in this, by someone in politics. And Trump right, was that but guy. it's kind of like, it's hard to talk about that. You know, you don't want to, to, to start, you know, you have to figure out a way of doing that in a conservative idiom and Burnham sort of, it sort of not only helps you get there, but sort of jump starts you there and um and 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 that that was one of the sort of the interesting things to just sort of witness there was the constant sort of a step toward talking about material conditions and then and then um a step back from that you know so so in a sense the function of a character like tucker carlson right is to kind of is to kind of acknowledge some of the material conditions problems, but then to retranslate them back into the culture war, right? So he's he he actually plays quite a quite an important function um, in this sort of small universe. Yeah, I mean, nationalism is also extremely important as an extension, or somehow connected to improving material conditions would be improving the nation that we must be proud of this nation, and then going all these different places to find some sort of biblical basis for nationalism when in yes. fact it's just like pretty just straightforward xenophobia like it's not it's not that new or complicated but there is this excitement around it let's pick apart Tucker Carlson a little bit more like what is he doing to kind of make these things cohere like, why is he such an exciting figure for them? I think that it's because he does, if, if, if we were to talk about sort of the, the ideologies or the ideological variants that these people were opposed to, um, I'd say that, you know, the, the, the enemies that were sort of being stalked in the room, sometimes in a kind of um, uh, dramatic um, way, uh, but were, were, were sort of libertarianism, sort of free market libertarianism, neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> And then, um, you know, neoconservatism, actually, right? Sort of the, the, the neoconservatism of the, of the Bush years and stuff. So those are the two sort of um, foes that were presented. And we can get into the contradictions there. But, but, but Carlson, you know, on his show does, does attack those things a lot of the time. You know, he does have, you know, whole segments against corporate America. He does have... Um, I think he just had a recent segment against the Soleimani killing, right? Because he just he thought of that as a, just a sort of unnecessary, very neoconish move to kind of get us back into this war with Iran that he doesn't want. So, um, so he's appealing for them because he um, he does have these he does have these two things that he sticks to in a fairly convincing way. But he, you know, there, there's a way in which you could imagine a, a nationalism, right? Um, like liberal nationalism, right? Like liberal nationalism was a big thing in the 90s. You know, there were there were people writing lots of books about liberal nationalism. Michael Lind wrote a wrote a pretty good book about liberal nationalism. 
um, as a kind of liberatory thing. Now, there's all kinds of problems with liberal nationalism, but the problem is that these guys like Tucker Carlson, they also want to distance themselves from that because you don't want to get into a situation where we're talking about everybody being equal and even recent immigrants being equal to to sort of um, long-standing Americans. Um, and so you have to kind of figure out a way to to disentangle that. And the way to do that is through, you know, classic, just culture war stuff, you know, like, you, you know, you're un-American because you don't eat steak and, and so forth. Um, so, so he likes to do that. And, um, and that, that everybody kind of, that kind of brings everybody together, right? Everybody yeah. likes that, you know, the neocons like that, the, the, the free marketeers like that, you know, everybody, everybody likes that. But, you know, you asked an earlier question um, about nationalism. And I think that that's a, a, a central thing is that, you know, nationalism, way back when did do all this stuff, you know what I mean? It, it, it had all this power in the 19th century. It destroyed these royal courts and a lot of, a lot of the horrible sort of um, feudal infrastructure of Europe was sort of smashed by national, liberal nationalist movements or nationalist movements, you know? But I think that, I think that one in this, in the particular world that we live in right now, I think one has to be skeptical of, of, of anyone who's claiming the mantle of nationalism, right? Um, and I say this both of, of right-wing nationalists like these guys, um, but also, you know, left-wing nationalism has not had a very good run in the past, you know, two or three years. No. Um, <laughs> Or in the yeah, 90s. You know, so, <laughs> right. Or, or in the 90s. Right. Exactly. So, so you know, just a couple of years ago, there was a big push, you know, for, for sort of left nationalist parties in, in, in Europe to sort of um, come to power. And in Germany, where, where I'm right now, you know, that, that ended in, in pretty dramatic failure. And I think it, it, it will fail elsewhere, too. And I think that um, that's what's interesting about these guys. They can't really imagine anything sort of beyond nationalism. They can't imagine a sort of a larger political entity that would, you know, one day include Canadians and, you know, Mexicans in a sort of larger entity, you know, these, these kind of things are just completely off the table. Um, right. So, so they kind of, in a way want to sort of freeze, freeze history in this national setting. Um, and, um, and they have all kinds of utopias in the past that they want to go to. So some of the pieces piece runs through what these utopias look like and, and, you know, how delusional they are. Right. I mean, as you say, there are so many different self-descriptors that these people who are attending this conference use, reformacons, uh, there's right. some uh, Jewish fellows there, there are lots of different, uh, you know, people who definitely aren't racists there, because nobody stood up when they were asked if they were racist yeah. there. Always a good sign. It's a big tent, or at least it's trying to be. So where is the common root to all of these ideologies? Like, is it that discussed with these endless wars that we've been having? Or is it something a little bit simpler? I mean, you're talking about nationalism, but what has driven them to find a home here? So, yes, there's there's quite divergent stuff um, at this conference and, and in this movement. A lot of people there sort of speak in this Teddy Roosevelt sort of language of a, of a strong state that's going to break up monopolies and so forth. Um, whether it was Peter Thiel or Joshua Hawley, you know, um, they spoke in that mode. But, you know, both of them are, in Thiel's case, a major donor, in Hawley's case, a major recipient of money from the club for growth, you know, a kind of classic um, free market super PAC that, you know, basically just tries to drive down taxation and just the usual sort of bill of fare. 
so that that was not really the thing, you know. I mean, there was another guy there, Patrick Deneen, you know, who's actually quite worried about a, a strong state, and and he was kind of representing the kind of hardcore Catholic faction, you know, which even as a sort of quite historically informed Catholic, he's even a little bit uncomfortable with nationalism itself, right? Mm. Because it. it has a tendency to sort of crush these small little communities that he was obsessed with. So, um, so there wasn't that much coherence there. On the endless war thing, yeah, there there was a lot of coherence on that. I mean, I would say that almost everyone there um, was was very skeptical of of American power sort of being used in the way that it was in the Bush years. However, one has to distinguish, you know, their sort of endless war. Um, skepticism from a sort of Bernie Sanders skepticism of endless war, right? They're, they're actually coming from two different places. I mean, one is talking about sort of creating um, a more genuine international system in which the U.S. is a more genuinely equal member um, in, Bert, in Sanders' case, um, whereas they're, they're talking about a sort of a, an even more sort of sensitive epidermis to the American nation that, you know, doesn't want to have to reach its arm into doing things in Afghanistan or something like that. But if that national is, is peaked or something, or if it feels any pressure, it will respond very, very sensitively, right? So so they're, they're very divided over the Soleimani strike, right? I mean, um, a guy like Tom Cotton, you know, who in many ways would fit into this group is, is ex- you know, extremely gung-ho about about doing uh, the, the assassination, whereas, you know, someone like Carlson is against it. So, so, so there's a little bit of um, difference there. But I think that the main thing is just uh, is a sense of, of, of a shared enemy. And, um, you know, for an ideology to kind of get off the ground, you need a shared enemy. And um, they know that their enemy is is the liberal elite. Um, the cosmopolitans. <laughs> is, is, yes, the cosmopolitans are endlessly invoked. And because that, that you can, I mean, you know, it was really like a mantra, you know, the cosmopolitans, the cosmopolitans. And that, you know, as vague as that is, that's where their, their sites are trained because they do, they have, and some of them have, you know, um, quite reasonably recognized that, you know, the political contest that we're facing in this season right now is really... Um, an inter-elite struggle. Like, I think that they're right to identify it as such. And it is about sort of, you know, what happens to that top 10, 15% of the U.S. Um, of wealth in the U.S. Where, where does it, where does it go? How does it protect itself? Where does it move ideologically? And so, 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 so they see some of that, but, um, but in many ways, they're actually part of the same thing as a lot of the members of the liberal class. They're just a little bit more crude in the way that they speak. But, um, but, but yeah, it's the shared enemy rather than any kind of shared mission of among themselves. Do you feel like that idea of a shared enemy I mean, not that other political movements haven't been founded in opposition to something or someone or some group. Do you feel like the fact that these national conservatives are so kind of fractured and kind of off in their own sort of niches, do you feel like this is a reflection of the Internet? Because so much of the Internet, you know, things like Fox News or effective social media pages, what makes them effective is outraging people making people angry and the idea that you know you could read enough stories about say pronouns in college campuses or college students running amok voicing mild displeasure about one thing or another and then eventually sort of bringing them into the fold do you feel like that they're united by the sense of a shared enemy is reflective of this very specific moment and how technology really shapes how we engage with politics. 
So that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I think that um, these guys and everything around them is sort of the highbrow version of, of, of a lot of much more degraded stuff. And um, some of these people are very good writers. Some of the publications um, have a lot of interesting stuff in them. And um, I think that, you know, if there's something funny about the National Conservatives, you know, in, in this kind of highbrow group um, is that um, they, you know, their publications read almost like 19th century letters. You know, I mean, when you think of a magazine like the Claremont Review of Books, right, it has a kind of, um, it's almost like picking up something in 1720 or something, even the, even the, the way that it feels in your hands, you know. So, 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 um, so I think that there's actually a, a bit of an antagonism toward, toward the internet. I mean, some of their pieces, of course, go viral and, and, and they benefit from it in some ways. Um, and and Hazoni, the the kind of um, impresario of the conference, you know, you know, he's not a fool. He knows how to use the internet. But um, but in general, I think that they resent the the overall effect of the internet because they are interested in having more unity than they have, you know. Um, and they feel that, you know, I think that they quite rightly suspect that they would have more influence in a world without the internet when the, where there was more hierarchies and and you know these the self-proclaimed wise men of the American right could have a little bit more straightforward influence like you could in in the old days, you know, when it was just a few magazines and a few, you know, right wing intellectuals who could kind of control everything, you know. So um, so I think that there's a bit of envy of of previous incarnations of, of conservatism, which could be could be run in a more top down manner. I mean, a classic case of this is um, Michael Anton's piece in the Claremont Review of Books about this book called Bronze Age Pervert, right? By, by, yes. by this, by this, By you the know, Bronze Age Pervert. <laughs> by the Bronze, exactly, right? So, and it's this very um, forthright kind of reckoning, you know, I must take this book seriously. You know, this is what the kids, this is what the alt-right kids are reading. And, you know, and lo and behold, you know, maybe this is the nature of our time. Um, and there's, you can kind of see the earnestness and a little bit of the, a little bit of the comedy that, that is these people trying to sort of ride the, 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 the wild bronco of the internet. You know, I think that, I think that they would prefer to be done with it. And you see that in some of their antitrust talk, you know, I mean, they, 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 they don't, they don't like it. And, um, you know, there's, there's certainly exceptions. I mean, there's, there's many people on it that are very skilled, you know, but, um, but, but you have to remember these are, these are mostly old guys who are not like, you know, digital natives or whatever. Right. I mean, Peter Thiel, his involvement in this is so fascinating, um, not just because of what he says, but simply that he's there. You know, he's not at CPAC. He's at this event. Right. So can you can you talk about why that is? Why 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 out of any sort of conservative, uh, you know, drained a circle? Why is he why is he here? I'm sure that there's all kinds of personal reasons and other things. But I think that um Teal is, is, is interesting and, 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 and almost unique among these figures in terms of actually having very defined views about the future, right? And he's, he's much more of a futurist than anybody there. And, um, and so when he looks into his crystal ball, you know, he sees a lot of things that he doesn't like. He doesn't like China. He doesn't like what that would do to both the world economy, but also the internet and various other things. And, and, you know, some of those things he's probably right about. Um, but, um, but I think that he's a fairly recent convert to, to sort of hardcore nationalism as a sort of overlooked resource that he's willing to latch onto if it, if it means getting some of his, his, his agenda through. And that means, you know, protecting certain industries, you know, and, um, 
and making sure that um, that certain technologies are possible that that are, that are that are not happening. I think he's kind of disappointed in he's sort of disappointed in the post Cold War technologies. You know, um, he's he's a little disappointed that there isn't cooler stuff and that and that we're not doing more wild projects. Um, I think that he's he misunderstands why that's the case. I think that <laughs> yeah. I think that you know. That He's just stuff mad he can't live of... forever. Like, really, that's right, all. That's right, kind of right. that's kind of the long and the short of it. But you know, yeah. So yeah, I mean, um, that's an interesting thing, actually, because you would think of of finitudes and and future generations and stuff being um, being such a conservative drumbeat over the centuries. But actually, um, he he. But he for me, he was interesting because he. He actually has a, you know, a mission of sort of culling together a new elite, you know, um, a new small group of people who will somehow sort of rejuvenate the, the country, you know, and that and that we need to kind of somehow allow for that to happen. And um, and and right now it might take billions and billions of dollars, but you know, eventually there will be this little sort of nucleus of a self-renewing aristocracy that can that can sort of help guide the, the whole planet forward onto other new planets and you know and then so on and so forth farther and farther into outer space just yeah he just wants star trek to be real which is fine but when you're talking about this new group of elites is that new gr- group of elites implicitly white because the national conservatives are anti-immigrationist and also, they don't want to be accused right. of racism, but they right. they clearly think of America as a place for white people. Yeah, I, I mean, it's funny. I think that um, I don't think it's so much that they're that they're overt white nationalists and that they 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 don't talk about that. They don't really think about that actually. They, it's more that you know, if you're if you're a nationalist, right, and you're and you're quoting Walt Whitman left and right right you're quoting this very erotic american poet of nationalism you know it's just it's 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 more um it's it's just strange that that then you you end up with such a sort of homogenous group of people right because you would you would think that in order to be a successful nationalist you need to you need to have it you know and and i think that i think that their their feeling on their end would be like well you know but that would be so inauthentic if we just sort of you know paid a bunch of people to show up just so it would look diverse so that the New York Times would like give us more favorable treatment, you know, and do it when it's doing its little like counting number for how many minorities are in the room or whatever. And, you know, I get that. But um, but I think that it's more sort of, well, when you look into the mirror, you know, surely if you're a nationalist, you're failing at something if you're not sort of bringing the whole nation on with you. You know what I mean? Right. Um, like, you know, there there is a sort of a national credo that 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 can that can bring every they can bring more people on and so uh one has to ask yourself like why why is it that we're not why is it that we're not resonating with our fellow americans you know they're talking a lot about brotherly love fellow americans and so on and so forth so so i i don't i don't mind it's you know you know you can attack the liberal elite that's fine but it's just you know why are you not talking more about these people who are your fellow americans you know what i mean and um and if they're deluded if they're deluded in some sort of deranged thing that you think is a kind of vortex of very destructive identity politics, like, why are you not speaking to them in a more 
in a, in a, in a way that you're that you talk about the people who are who are in opioid in the opioid epidemic, right? I mean, when they talk about the opioid epidemic, they're actually very moving and they're and they're very empathetic and they really talk about like sort of trying to bring these people back into the nation. But like, why why don't they talk about everyone that way? That was sort of my thing. It was more kind of like. It seemed to me more of a kind of lapse in consciousness than than a kind of forthright. Um, we're actually, you know, closet white nationalists. Like I don't think that they are. I just think that there's a sort of profound lack of of, of understanding about even what nationalism is. So yeah, how would they get past that? I mean, would they be able to sort of find a post-racial version of anti-immigrationism? Or, I mean, because you're saying that it's not this purely exclusionary thing it's just they for whatever reason they just don't think in those terms yeah i mean i think i wrote elsewhere somewhere you know that 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 far more than than different racial groups or or the chinese or you know the the migrant has become sort of the the, the most useful specter for the right, right? Because you can kind of fill that with anything you want. You know what I mean? You can fill the specter with the migrant with any sort of bad experience that you've had, you know, in your life. You can just, it fits very nicely into this empty thing, the migrant, right? You know, the Chinese are too specific, you know, blacks are too specific, you know, but, but with the migrant, it's kind of, you can just impose anything on it, right? Now, I think that there is a profound, I mean, much, much stronger, much worse than xenophobic uh, strain in these people. I mean, Michael Anton, one of these guys who I, who I was very unimpressed by, um, is, um, you know, has written this, uh, kind of made his name among these people for, among other things, writing a piece in the Washington Post, I think it was, you know, claiming that, you know, well, maybe the natural born citizenship law, you know, m you know, maybe that means something else than what it's been taken to mean. And, you know, actually, you have to have a long history of American parenthood or something to be American, right? So, um, so there is a part of them that, that that totally that totally goes in on the that totally buys the migrant specter thing. But I think that I, I I try to raise this at one point in the piece. It's kind of like imagine a kind of radically alternative version of the Trump years, where Trump comes into office and he's like, you know, all that stuff about you know wanting to um, you know crush um, the donor class. Like I was serious actually about that, and actually like. <laughs> I'm going to do reparations, you know, because because black people love me and, you know, and I and I love them and I'm, I'm going to do reparations, you know, tomorrow. You know, like imagine <laughs> if he if he if imagine this sort of alternative thing where he actually like doubled down, like in a very serious way on sort of pan national full on, you know, um, um, working class nationalism. Like imagine, you know, like it, it's it's very hard to imagine. But 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 nevertheless, like some of the rhetoric pointed in that in that direction occasionally. And so um, so they take a lot of Trump's uh, rhetoric at face value, you know, but they but they, it's like they take the wrong bits. It's like they, they take the wrong pieces of it at face value, you know, um, and um, and so they're so they're kind of constantly doing this game of like, they you know, they like to make fun of college professors, these guys. But they they actually sound like, you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, most unbearable English professor, you know, when they're like, well, you know, of course, Trump didn't mean that tweet. That was a sort of that was an illusion, you know, not a um, not a statement, you know, this kind of thing. You know, so, so there's a kind of um, there's a sort of a, a real art to the sort of interpretation um, that they've mastered where where, you know, Trump cannot mean anything that that he actually has just said, you know, and so forth. Right. I mean, that. That goes back to the sort of the tendency in the alt right to use jokes and humor and memes and irony to say, well, it's like, well, I don't actually really believe this. It's all a joke, but they can signal so much through these different, 
you know, memes that is, right. that is deadly serious about its racism. But you have to be in, you sort of inculcated into that scene to understand it. Right. I mean, I think that, um, you know, again, I mean, I, I think that that um, I think that, you know, the the alt right has has this interest in, in, in irony and sort of double entendre and all these various other things. I think I think in some ways what was what was funny about this thing was that there there there's also kind of this on the sort of opposite side of the spectrum. There's this there's this new kind of national conservative creature that I that I think is kind of a new thing in a way, which is this kind of just Josh Hawley kind of phenomenon where you have a it's like a kind of extreme like digital digitized, you know, um, wholesomeness. Right. Like it's this kind of sort of st- steroidal wholesomeness where, you know, I'm just a straight talking guy who's, you know, read my Virgil and read my classics and, you know, we need to kind of go back to what this country was supposed to be about and so on and so forth. And, um, I think that, that, that's a very, that's a very sort of seemingly earnest, you know, um, and, and quite, quite interesting thing, right? Cause it's, it's sort of, it's sort of like completely different from Trump, at least in its, in its form, but it's still trying to do this thing that Trump does where you, you know, you get, you both pick up the, the resentment votes from the working class and then you pick up a lot of elite money at the same time. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that's a, that's not an easy thing. That's not an easy thing to do. And I think that, um, I think that people sometimes fail to appreciate like how deft and how how impressive Trump is at the fact that he's constantly able to do this with both sides kind of knowing knowing that he's doing this like everybody knows that he's doing this um but the way that he does it is is very effective and um but I think that there's a chance that, that you could get even someone more effective later on you know with, with sort of minus some of the some of the 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 theatrics of Trump you know a more a more uh, sober version of it but would that work without the showmanship if you are really going to be like, hey, deplorables, I see you. You're valid. <laughs> but in but in his I think own. It, I think it, I think it can. I think it yeah. can. I think that there's a you know, I think that. I think that this is now this is kind of like a, a menu, you know, mm. and um, and I think it can work with many different many different in many different iterations i think it can work in a holly format you know maybe better maybe worse than the than the trump format i think that trump is i think that trump's own like actual theatrical qualities might might have have a have a shelf life of some kind but um but i think that i think that you can keep doing this for at least a while uh, you know until until conditions get so bad that it just becomes intolerable something that kind of captures this is um the war on big pharma right that was a big thing that Trump talked a lot about in his campaign, right? That he's going to go to war against big pharma. And Hawley also talks about it. And in a way, they're serious about it. In a way, they do actually want to lower drug prices because they know that that would be a boon to their to their working class voters, which it obviously would be. But at the same time, they take a lot of money. You know, I think Trump's... Um, one of his guys that he wanted to put in charge of this was like Tom Marino, I think was his name. He's implicated in, in the opioid crisis. So, so, so you have this problem where, you know, you're trying to do all this, but you have to do this with Mitch McConnell who takes all this money from big pharma. And so there's this sort of back and forth thing. You have to constantly sort of 
deny what you're actually doing. And sort of the more effective you are at denying it, the better. You know, Trump just screams to the high heavens that he's just not doing that and that, you know, he's going to war with Big Pharma, even though he's not. Right. And and somehow just the, the, the decibel level of the denial is so loud that people just either believe it or they know that it's not true, but they still vote for him because they hate the they hate the opposite. They hate the other candidate so much. But with Hawley, it's like it's a more complicated is that, you know, he's he's you know, he occasionally puts forward a bill or something like that to show that he's serious, you know, so. So, so there is a there is this kind of contradiction that they're constantly working out, and it's sort of how who is the most skilled at eliding the contradiction, you know that's the question, and I think that that was something that 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 doesn't ever really get articulated by these by these national conservatives in 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 actual writing in actual in actual speech. I guess the last thing I wanted to touch on you were sort of alluding to this, but how do these people resolve? Or do they even try to resolve the difference between what Donald Trump says he is doing and what he actually does? You know, I mean, it was a huge moment during the Republican debates when Donald Trump was like, yeah, I think the Iraq war was a terrible idea. It's it's awful. Right. I would end it. And that was this huge break in in Republicanism where it's like no one else could say that except for him. But now he's like almost starting war with Iran. So how do how do these people resolve that tension between what Donald Trump is supposed to be and what he actually is? Yes, that's very important. You know, there was a piece, I think it was an M plus one by Aziz Rana that made the the very acute observation that, that Trump in some ways is the first post-Cold War president, right? Mm -hmm. Because he's he's aware that when you just sort of look around the geopolitical scene, there's a lot of sort of old useless machinery sitting around, right? Like what is NATO supposed to be doing now? You know, what is all this, what are all these, you know, thousands of Americans sitting in the middle of Germany? Like, what are they supposed to be doing? And I think that he recognized, you know, that for a long time, the U.S. was willing to sort of allow its its client states to sort of, in a way, he's right, push it around economically because, you know, they were... They had sort of signed up for our ideological program and, and got some benefits for doing that, right? So South Korea grew its economy, Japan grew its economy, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I think that Trump already in the 80s was already kind of getting fed up with this, right, when, in his obsession with Japan and the trade war. And um, and I think that he, he, he also just sees in some ways quite clearly the Iraq war for the disaster that it was. I mean, recall that he, he called for Bush to be impeached. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he thought that it was ridiculous that, that Nancy Pelosi wasn't trying to impeach Bush. Right. right. Um, and he just sort of says this matter of factly as if it's completely obvious. So he's right about those things. But but on the other hand, you know, there's this whole tendency. You see it in The New York Times every day. Every day, The New York Times says, you know, Trump is an isolationist and so on and so forth. And it's complete nonsense. You know, he's 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 actually ramped up troop levels almost everywhere. He's increased aid to Saudi Arabia for the Yemen war. Mm -hmm. He's just done this strike against Soleimani. He's vigorous. I mean, he's assiduous about doing NATO exercises up in Sweden and in, and in Scandinavia against the Russians. He's ramped up sanctions against the Russians, despite all of the rhetoric. You know, right. he's actually harder on Russia in many respects than Obama was. He's actually been able to see a lot of things and articulate things that that, that another American president could actually really do something about. Um, and in that sense, he has actually broken up in a space, I think, in foreign policy to actually, like, really rethink itself. But in terms of his actual policies, um, the continuity is just is unbelievable. It's unbelievably continuous with with what came before. And so I think that, you know, some of these people are aware of that. And some of them are quite reasonable about some foreign policy positions as well. But I think that one, as I said before, you know, they you have to keep in mind, you know, what do you what do you 
you know, I might agree with with Tucker Carlson that the Soleimani strike was stupid, but you know, but the end games are a little bit different. You know, mm-hmm. um, the end games of what what one actually wants the world order to look like are different, and I think that that's that's the thing that needs to be kept in mind. Right. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on or go back on? I think it's just worth. Um, when studying Trump, I think it's interesting to study the people who who claim to be making him into into a kind of coherent, viable precursor to to a sort of rich, flourishing ideology. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think that if you look at those, if you look at if you look to those people, you can learn a lot about other things that are brewing under the surface. Um, and in some ways it's a more convenient, it's often a very convenient way of, of learning about things rather than sort of trying to make your way through the mess of the, of the internet. It's like, this is the, this is the distilled spirit that comes out at the end. And if you drink it, you can, if you keep your senses you can um, you can in some ways experience the thing in a more, in a, in a different way than, than it's often experienced. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 